Uh, one of your classmates, uh, Kelly, has offered to uh, share her uh, personal experience uh, working in a hospital mm -hmm. and um, in the uh, mental health unit at the mm -hmm. hospital. And so I won't even give her any more introduction. I'll just let her tell you what she's seen and how she's seen it. Well, stand up? Uh, sure. Well, I'm going to disclose some information, so I'm not going to say which hospital I work at, but um, we have the largest locked psych ward in the city, which I didn't know until I started working up there. Um, one misinterpretation that I had is I thought that the worst of the worst cases were at the state hospital in Salem, but no, they're actually at our facility because we only take, the state hospital only takes people that are nonviolent and compliant with meds. Um, it was a very interesting experience. At first, it was kind of scary because, you know, everyone's like coming up to me because they know if you're quote unquote normal. They, they can pick you out a mile away and they'll come up to you. And um, some of the patients were very violent. We had a girl with a personality, borderline personality, which is when people intentionally harm themselves a lot. And she had to be put in four point restraints with uh, mitten restraints because she went so far as to break, the, break her lenses to try to cut herself. So she was very unsafe. Um, I'd say about half the patients were schizophrenic and um, some of them were very paranoid and delusional. Some of them were, you know, very unsafe to themselves and were actually in the, the we, like the whole unit is locked and then there's room, uh, about five rooms that are like kind of double locked to keep people and they were in there and um, the patients with schizophrenia seemed to speak a lot of good and evil. Like things were either good or they were evil. It was the devil. Like I had one patient look at my shoes and he's like, the devil wears Nikes. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And um, I remember one thing that sticks out. One of the patients, there was a pile of linens and one of the nurses were like, what is that from? He's like, oh, well, uh, that's, uh, that's the abominable snowman sleeping bag. And, you know, he, his logic, I mean, his thought process was obviously there because he was, you know, his speech was clear and understandable, but there was just absolutely no logic from one sentence to the next. There's just no connection of any sort. And it was just very interesting to witness. Any questions? Yes. How did you get into that? Well, I actually injured my back <laughs> at work. And so I was put on modified duty. So I basically am the secretary and I buzz people in and answer the phones and stuff like that. Oh, she asked me how I got into that line of work. What, so the main things that you uh, see were schizophrenia? I'd say about half the patients. Yeah, there was someone who was in bipolar mania who was there. And, um, he was also a sexual predator, so he had to spend most of his time locked up because when he came out into the general population, he wasn't allowed to say anything about any anatomy of a woman. Like he said, some girl had nice eyes, and that was enough to get him put back. Um, he just was all over the place. He was like always asking for like phone books, 
and like he would like take them and like rip out all the pages for some reason and like be like well this phone book's no good it doesn't have the listing I'm looking for I need another phone book and yeah he was he was there for bipolar mania we had some people who were there with bipolar and they were in their depressive state and they were just a lot of the patients just aimlessly wandering pacing back and forth and back and forth and you know they had activities to try to keep them you know happy and everything but they were just the depressed the 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 girl with the borderline personality was also diagnosed with bipolar and she was in her depressive state and yeah she just nothing nothing I mean we had to take the linens off of her bed because she was tearing up her sheets and trying to strangle herself I mean it was obviously very non-harmful like you know she she had to make sure her hair looked nice when she would wrap something around her neck and it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't obviously harmful like if she wanted to kill herself she would have type thing like and so but I mean she took anything and everything she could think of screws that she found I mean anything and she was she was very violent towards the nurses that would come in and take things away from her like because I had to watch her on the monitor and I was like well she's got something you know and they're like well how did she get you know because she was in a room with nothing but she managed to find all sorts of things just everywhere that she could use interesting frightening I couldn't imagine <laughs> having my mind betray me like these people have but they're totally in their own reality definitely just not connected to the world in any sort of way like one boy was ADHD and schizophrenia and he was explaining to the nurse that somebody had gone back in time to frame him which is why he was there he didn't belong there but someone had gone back five years in time and changed him somehow and he just that's what he believed <laughs> any other questions The typical age range, there was 20s, 30s. There were a few people in their 40s, but I was really surprised at how young some of the, you know, one of the boys was like 19. And we had one, one patient who I guess spends her, has spent the last 20 years of her life in between the state hospital and my hospital. Just you know when she gets non-compliant with meds and violent she comes to us when she gets better she goes back to them and so she's basically lived in mental institutions her entire life but I was really surprised how young how young they were but how old they looked like I would like check to see patients age and they were like 35 and they could have passed for 50 they definitely looked very distressed and aged I'm a CNA. It's a certified nurse's assistant. Okay. And uh, so, based on your limited experience 
doing this for, you know, maybe a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. That's a good question if I'd want to work in a psychiatric facility. Um, it's a lot different than the other medical floors because these patients are up and walking and talking and they can tell you exactly what they need. Like I'll have patients come up and be like, I need my, and they'll rattle off like a 20 letter medication name. And you know, they know exactly what it's for and they know when they need it and they know why they need it. and. It's a lot different up there, and I think it's, it can be really stressful because when one person's really acting up, like everyone else is curious as to why and what's going on. And, but um, I think over the other types of medicine, it would be, it would be a good experience. It's, I like it. I think, you know, a lot of the people, you can joke around with them, and that's totally cool with them, and they appreciate it. But in, in the other types, you, you know, it's more, the patients don't really know what they need and are a lot more needy in general. I think uh, the psychiatric patients could be just as frightened as the um, medical patients because depending on why the medical patient is there, they can be like really frightened. But psychiatric patients, a lot of them wanted to get out and they wanted to leave, and some of them didn't understand why that they why they were there. Um, the ones that were just like super delusional, you know, they were really frightened because they, you know. They s and we dress in normal clothes, too, to kind of reduce that white coat, you know, problem. You know, we dress in street clothes, and they dress in their street clothes usually, too, to try to just kind of blend in and so they don't have the lab coats, you know, coming after them or whatever. But the ones that are really delusional and paranoid were very frightened. And some of them are, you know, crying and just like, what is, why am I here? I don't, I shouldn't be here. Oh no, there was definitely the, you know, they were, a lot of them have like as needed medications and usually the nurses won't even give the as needed medications unless the patient comes and asks. Like they know if they're getting super anxious and they'll come and they'll ask for something, but no, I mean, for the most part, unless they're harming themselves or like stirring everyone else up and getting everyone, I mean, the first line is to redirect. You know, to try to get their attention off of the current situation and onto something else. Be like, hey, well, you know, you don't need to try to start a fight with them. Let's come over here and play the guitar. 
or something, you know, to try to redirect them to something else. And I'd say the very last line, the borderline personality girl, they did have to forcibly medicate her because she was just, you know, she was, we have a, we have a TV in the room that she was in, like there's a great room and then she had a TV and she actually managed to somehow break open the plexiglass and try to get to the cords on the back of the television and she was, you know, very violent towards the staff. She was hitting the staff and punching the staff and so they forcibly had to medicate her but she did a lot of kicking and screaming and door slamming and trying to break the window to get out at us but no, they're definitely not over medicated at all. Very active patients. Which was nice. I mean, I'd, it'd be really sad if I just came and everyone was just like so over medicated that they just couldn't even function at all. Is there like a central area where they can be social? Oh yeah, there's lots of central areas. I mean, everyone, everyone's room has a camera in it, and everyone's. You know, all the main areas have cameras, but we've got like the cafeteria area, and there's a TV room, and there's a quiet room where people can go and read. But no, they definitely all interact, and you know, they know each other's names and everything, and each other's dispositions, and they'll even warn each other. One of them, one of the patients was starting to get really out of control, and the other one was like, hey, you don't want to be doing that now. You want to just calm down, or else they're going to come and make you calm down. <laughs> So it's they interact with each other a lot. So I imagine most of them have the potential to be in a delusional state, but most of the time are they not? Are they pretty they seem fairly sane most of the time and then like something might trigger it and then they kinda get in that delusional state and maybe a little irrational or are you constantly dealing with somebody here who's doing something that's a little bit Um, I'd say it's a pretty good combination of both people that are constantly just delusional and not aware of what's going on and then there's there was one patient who was there with psychosis but it was because he was coming down from meth pretty hard and so he had a lot of like if he couldn't get his Ativan that's a very common drug to calm people down if he couldn't get that man he was like at the nurse's station Where's my Ativan? Where's my Ativan? I need to calm down. I can get really angry if I need to. And then, so there was a good mix of people that were just constantly delusional. And some of them, you know, I hate to say pleasantly delusional, but they were, you know, functioning and their delusions weren't harmful like the abominable snowman's sleeping bag. You know, that's not, that's not a harmful thought for him. That's not frightening to him. You know, he thought it was cool. He was like, yeah, I just saw him walk down the hall and this and that. So... You know, but yeah, it's a good mix of both. Is it stressful for you? Um, I tend to roll with the punches pretty well. Um, one of the nurses was actually like, wow, usually the people who come up on modified duty are, we have to worry about them more than the patients, but my first job as a CNA was with um, Alzheimer's and a lot of the later stages they have a lot of psychotic features and so I've learned that boy you don't take anything personally 
Oh man, because that will just eat you up. One of the one of the patients told me that I should buy myself some fake boobs to go with my big butt, and I was like, "All right, I'll take that into consideration," you know. And it's like if you take anything personally, you're done. And you also have to learn that if you stress, then they just get more stressed. It just makes it so much worse. Like if you are like, "Oh man, this person's coming at me and they're angry." And if you go up to them and you're like, you know, they just feed off that and then they're like, why are they nervous? Are they going to do something to me? And you just got to, you just got to roll with it really well. It's not for everybody, that's for sure. One of the nurses there, I was like, wow, because she like, everything was like making her like, oh my God. She's like, just calm down. <laughs> so you get to have some Ativan too? No, no Ativan for me. Yeah, it was definitely an experience. Um, at least another week I'll be there. I go see the doctor on Tuesday and he'll tell me if I can return to my normal duties or not. I would doubt that I'll be returning to all my normal duties though. I think maybe sometimes the doctors treat the patients differently, but not so much the nurses, because the doctors are there for, you know, 10 minutes evaluation and then they're done, whereas the nurses are there for eight hours. And if you treat someone who, you know, technically, I guess, is different because they have a psychi psychiatric condition differently, then that's just going to snowball on you. and. You know, no one likes to be treated differently. No one likes to be treated like disrespectfully or like they're an idiot because they have a psychiatric condition. You know, they could be the smartest person in the world. I mean, like the, the, the guy, the beautiful mind guy, you know, he was schizophrenic but a genius. And I think that if you, I mean, you got to be on your toes, you know, but not so much to where you're changing your behavior because of the patients. One of the things in the Rosenhan article that became an issue was uh, eye contact. Mm -hmm. That um, doctors, when they interacted with psychiatric patients, um, one of the characteristics of their interactions was that they wouldn't make eye contact. Hmm. Um, and you know, part of that is, well, does the eye, can the eye contact serve as kind of a, uh, an irritant for the patient? Well, with with eye contact and the patients, I know that some of the patients were definitely they didn't want eye contact, and like if you made eye contact, they would look away, 
And then you know, okay, well they don't they don't want to make eye contact, but I try to make eye contact when I'm talking to someone. And um, you know, some of the patients, yes, it would trigger them to like be nasty and start getting really upset, but most of the patients kind of makes them feel a little more human if you look at them in the eye like you would anybody else. So, I mean, it, it's a pretty dehumanizing experience to live in a psychiatric hospital and to have your every move watched and monitored on a camera and, you know, be reported to the doctors and the social workers. So I think any bit of humanity we can give back is good. My experience has changed my perspective in that, boy, I sure hope that never happens to me. I couldn't even imagine being betrayed by my mind as these people have been. I mean, and, you know, it's, it takes away some of the judgment because, I mean, you know, we're all taught not to judge, but we do. And you think like a psychiatric person, you're like, oh, crazy person, you know, out of control, just insane and it kind of takes some of that away when you can actually see it and be around it and realize that they're just a person trying to go through life and they're just having a hard time at it and they are you know they're having a real hard time I'm sure they'd be rather be anywhere else than where they are right now Okay, so today we're going to talk about disorders of childhood and adolescence. Um, you know, when we talk about disorders of childhood and adolescence, really what we're talking about is disorders that generally first occur during what we consider developmental, you know, the early developmental stages in your life. So, um, so in the in the DSM, this is actually called disorders usually first diagnosed in childhood and adolescence. And what's important about this idea is that, as with all other concepts of abnormality, your developmental stage and, and your development is measured against developmental norms. And this comes more into, into play when we deal with pervasive developmental disorders, right? So we say somebody should be talking by age whatever, or somebody should be able to walk by age whatever. And so we compare their functional development with the norms that we expect at a particular age. But what we're going to talk about um, more differently than those kind of pervasive developmental disorders are the uh, externalizing disorders, and then we'll, but we'll also talk today about some of the internalizing disorders too. So externalizing disorders being disorders that have this real um, acute uh, 
outward, these real acute outward symptoms, whereas internalizing disorders tend to be less outward directed and more inwardly directed. So, for example, mood disorders, depressions, things like that. Um, now, when we talk about development in terms of um, abnormality, a question, Chris? Um, probably not. Uh, it, I don't think that he would be able to be diagnosed with a disorder, um, with a disorder, one of the developmental disorders. It's his behavior is a product of sleep deprivation, but that's a medical, uh, that's more of a medical issue. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. What'd you miss? There's nothing real important there anyway, but it's kind of the, uh, just the basic intro kind of slide. So when we talk about development um, and the development of um, normal development, remember that uh, we think of children, um, especially up until maybe seven or eight years old, uh, as having um, a, real strong a real strong sense of egocentrism. So they tend to see the world uh, as centered around them, first of all. And they also tend to think that other people see the world in the same way that they do. And so um, it's not until later in development that children are actually able to develop uh, what's called a real sense of theory of mind, um, which means that children are beginning to be able to, to tell that other people have independent thoughts, independent minds, that they don't have the same sensory experiences that the child does, and so on and so forth. And uh, this is going to be important in terms of the development of empathy. And um, there's a model of empathy development that talks about different stages of development in empathy. And so um, what it tends to indicate is that uh, up until about two years old, um, babies begin to be able to develop a sense of other people having situational distress. So the idea that other people are distressed by their environment, by their situation. Before that age, they don't really get a sense of that. Okay, They tend to see the world, as I said, very egocentrically. And it's not until somewhere between two and six that um, that they tend um, to start seeing their own distress as situationally based too. So it's less, again, egocentric, less self-centered, and it begins to be able to take into account um, the situation and the other people in the situation. And then as they get a little bit older, then they can start uh, developing this kind of generalized concern for other people's situation. And also that it begins transcending the situation and they start being able to have general empathy for people regardless of the situation and how the situation might be affecting those people's behavior or those people's experience.
And it's that, um, that idea of a real, uh, you know, being able to see other people as worthy individuals, regardless of them earning their worth because of what they do, that really um, encompasses this idea of empathy, right? You are all worthy individuals. You don't have to prove your worth to me. I can still empathize with you when you're suffering, right? Yeah. Yeah, it appears that way, yeah. Yep, um, normal development occurs this way. And for people that have antisocial personality or the childhood and adolescent version of that, which is um, conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, uh, they tend to, for some reason, not have developed those uh, that sense of empathy, yeah. It's also important to note that um, at about age three, we see the emergence of children being able to engage in cooperative play. Um, and so they're able to actually play with another child and switch roles and kind of uh, they're able to interact much more willingly rather than their play has to be centered around their toy and their experience, right? like all of a sudden you start seeing this other person and you a little bit you get a little bit of theory whoops you get a little bit of theory of mind and now you can see the other person's experience playing with the toy rather than just your own right so that shift from egocentrism to being able to start seeing other people's perspectives is very important for the development of functional social behaviors and a lot of the externalizing disorders that you are reading about and that we're going to talk about today are one of the breakdowns is that, that children is that the children and adolescents are having trouble functioning socially right so remember uh, when we talk about the DSM we're always saying does the behavior cause a problem in social occupational or interpersonal functioning people uh, that don't develop this stuff are going to have trouble with social and interpersonal functioning, right? I uh, gave you a um, one of the handouts that I gave you. I hope you read it. How many people got a chance to read the etiology and treatment of childhood? Anybody? One person? Okay. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, so this article starts out and it says, Childhood is a syndrome which has only recently begun to receive serious attention from clinicians. The syndrome itself, however, is not at all recent. As early as the 8th century, the Persian historian Kidnam made references to short, noisy creatures who may well have been what we now call children. The treatment of children, however, was unknown until this century when so-called quote, child psychologists, unquote, and quote, child psychiatrists, unquote, became common. Despite this history of clinical neglect, it has been estimated that well over half of Americans alive today have experienced childhood directly. <laughs> well over, I, I would, must say. Um, uh, and that, uh, that the citation for that is Seuss from 1980, 1983. And if you look in the references, you'll see 
uh, Seuss, DR, 1983, A Psychometric Analysis of Green Eggs with and Without Ham, Journal, journal of Clinical Cuisine. In fact, the actual numbers are probably much higher, since these data are based on self-reports, which may be subject to social desirability biases and retrospective distortion. The growing acceptance of childhood as a distinct phenomenon is reflected in the proposed inclusion of the syndrome in the upcoming DSM of the American Psychiatric Associations. Clinical are, clinicians are still in disagreement about the significant clinical features of childhood, but the proposed DSM-4 will almost certainly include the following core features. One, congenital onset. What does that mean? Birth. Happens at birth, yeah. Dwarfism. Three, emotional lability and immaturity. Four, knowledge deficits. And five, legume anorexia. They don't eat vegetables, right? Then it goes on with clinical features of childhood. Um, and then uh, some of the proposed uh, causes of childhood. Um, and um, some of the uh, psychological models and treatments that can be proposed. Um, I also liked this case study. Uh, Billy J, age eight, was brought to treatment by his parents. Billy's affliction was painfully obvious. He stood only four feet three inches high and weighed a scant 70 pounds, despite the fact that he ate voraciously. Billy presented a variety of troubling symptoms. His voice was noticeably high for a man. <laughs> he displayed legume anorexia and, according to his parents, often refused to bathe. His intellectual functioning was also below normal. He had little general knowledge and could barely write a structured sentence. Social skills were also deficient. He often spoke inappropriately and exhibited, quote, whining behavior, unquote. His sexual experience was non-existent. Indeed, Billy considered women icky. His parents reported that his condition had been present from birth, improving gradually after he was placed in a school at age five. The diagnosis was, quote, primary childhood, unquote. After years of painstaking treatment, Billy improved gradually. At age 11, his height and weight have increased, his social skills are broader, and he is now functional enough to hold down a, quote, paper route, unquote. So, um, I, you know, I gave you this article because I think it's funny, and it is, because, and, it, and it uses the language of psychology and psychiatry to, um, you know, to make fun of how we, what we consider abnormal, right? But it's also important because it, it really wasn't it, it really wasn't until um, relatively recently that we really thought of children as very distinct from adults, and especially in terms of um, uh, in, in terms of normal behaviors, but also in terms of abnormal behaviors. Um, for a long time, children were essentially just considered just small adults, and as we've learned more and more about developmental stages and the developmental process, we're able to see children as distinct from adults and having distinct needs and distinct um, features. And so, you know, this is, I think it's funny. Anyway. Um, so, so what, uh, 
you know, one of the problems that we have is in treatment for childhood uh, disorders. Because essentially all of the, at least medical treatments we have, biological drug treatments essentially, are developed on adults. And the pro one of the problems and controversies now is can we or should we use those same psychiatric uh, treatments for children? And uh, I'll talk a little bit about that um, a little bit later. So we'll talk first about the uh, externalizing disorders and then we'll go into the internalizing disorders. One of the primary features of the externalizing disorders is that um, the children or adults that have one of these disorders has a real hard time with interaction with others. Um, and this is oftentimes very evident in either ADHD uh, or the conduct disorders. And typical of those uh, problems with social functioning are things like rule violations. Now, all children and most, uh, well, most children and all teenagers break rules, right? Um, do you remember uh, Kohlberg's Stages of Moral Development? Anybody remember that? Is that coming out of the fog there somewhere? Um, Kohlberg proposed that uh, we have these stages of moral development. Um, now I can't think of them. Okay, so. Uh, pre-conventional, um, post, oops, uh, a conventional, and post-conventional, right? And remember that um, the pre-conventional stage of moral development is associated with um, uh, rewards and punishments. And it's a very egocentric stage of moral development and moral decision making. And essentially what this is, is I make my decisions based on whether uh, if, I do, if I do something, I'm going to be rewarded uh, or if I'm going to be punished. If I'm going to be punished, I don't do it. If I'm going to be rewarded, I do do it. So it's a very simple, um, operant, operantly conditioned kind of morality. And then he proposed during the conventional stage, um, that's marked by relatively strict adherence to rules and laws. And those rules um, and laws, uh, they provide people at this stage of development with a guide for how they should act. And then he'll say that in post-conventional, um, Then they start making moral decisions, le moral decisions less based on rules and more based on universal principles and universal truths and rights. And so this stage, I think, um, 
Oops. He said goes from about 9 to 20, and this goes up to about age 8, and then uh, 20 plus. So, uh, so in this, in these age levels, we think that children should be more, um, should be able to follow rules better as uh, they're younger. And so, if a child is displaying very egregious um, breaking of rules, and that's just not that's not just like normal breaking of rules, like you know, not closing the refrigerator door. That's a normal rule infraction. These serious rule infractions mean that um, as a result of breaking the rule, other people get hurt. And somebody with a an externalizing disorder isn't going to care very much if other people get hurt as a result of breaking their rules, right? It's also important to judge the rule violations in terms of uh, the kinds of things that we think of in all abnormal, abnormal uh, behaviors, frequency, duration, and the persistence. Um, uh, I'm sorry, intensity. And um, so does it, is it an intense rule violation? Does it happen frequently? And, you know, do they persist for a long time in breaking rules? And does it tend to pervade all different parts of their lives? Or do they just break a rule in one domain? If they just break rules at home and not out in, in their social world, then we not, we're not so much concerned about it as an externalizing disorder as if they're breaking rules in all different parts of their lives, right? It, they're also characterized by negativity, anger, uh, and aggression, which doesn't mean to say that, you know, all teenagers are you know, are doing, are having an externalizing disorder because they're angry or negative or aggressive, but rather it has to do with remorse. When they engage in these aggressive, angry behaviors and it's clear that they've hurt somebody else, do they have a sense of remorse or do they just not care? Um, and then also it has to do with intent. Is it accidental that they do these things or is it clear that it's an intentional breach which is designed to hurt somebody else. Uh, impulsivity is a good uh, indicator for externalizing disorders. And uh, hyperactivity in addition to that. Um, and as, you know, this is all tied together. Hyperactivity and attention deficits. So the inability to focus and to maintain um, sustained focus uh, is is characteristic of these kinds of attention deficits, which may be related with hyperactivity and an externalizing disorder. So once you get all this stuff thrown in together, that's when you start thinking externalizing disorder. When it's this kind of, it's it's a it's it's a syndrome of uh, behaviors. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, like, I've noticed a much higher tendency towards extreme actions, you know, with things like YouTube, where it's become like the cool thing to go out and videotape whatever destruction you can. How do you then define what is normal versus? 
so as um, as social norms and social mores uh, start as they change, how do we change our our interpretation of what a serious rule violation is versus um, a normal rule violation? That's a good question, you know, and it's and uh, and I think any good clinician is going to be able to reinterpret. Um, how serious the rule violations are, excuse me, in the context of current social norms. Um, but on the other hand, uh, these kinds of things come into play. You know, when, you know, when these teenagers, you know, videotape themselves beating up their friend or whatever, I don't remember what that whole thing was about, right? Um, there's obviously intent there, and there doesn't appear to be any remorse, right? So that's all coming into play. That's maybe normal but unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah, right. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, you know, I, um, I have a lot of problems with, um, the, with, uh, with what I perceive as a generalized erosion of civility in our culture. Um, and, uh, um, but on the other hand, um, even if everybody decides to become incivil and that becomes the norm, I have a hard time seeing it as normal because I have a perspective of what civility is like or was like, right? So it's, yeah, it is a real difficult thing to, to talk about is what is normal for adolescent rule breaking, right? It's really a judgment call, as is a lot of what you'll see in these disorders. You know, it's really going to be um, a, a very fine line for a clinician to be able to make these diagnoses, um, which is one reason why they're subject to a lot of criticism, too. Right? Yeah, it is a disturbing question. Yeah. Other questions on this stuff? It's four o'clock, you wanna take a little break? Get some sunshine? Uh, come back about uh, 10 minutes. Yes. Yeah, hold on a minute. Okay, so uh, let's talk about some of the diagnostic criteria for some of the externalizing uh, disorders. Um, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and ADD, attention deficit disorder, are essentially interchangeable uh, terms. Um, and, um, but they both share some uh, characteristics in terms of um, diagnostics with oppositional defiant disorder. And so one of the primary things that it looks at, as I said, we've got these age-based norms. And is there some kind of inconsistency with those age-based norms? But more importantly, is the... Um, is the behavior 
that leads to that inconsistency, maladaptive, right? They also require that the symptoms be present for at least six months and impact uh, social, academic, or occupational uh, functioning. I think that should be social, academic, and interpersonal, but I'm not sure. I don't know. It seems occupational and academic are similar in adolescence, but maybe not. Um, now, that's what these two things have in common. Now, let's look at each of them in terms of the specific kinds of uh, features that are going to differentiate uh, one from the other. I mean, if you see these kinds of uh, characteristics, then you start thinking, okay, externalizing disorder, um, ADHD opposition defiant disorder, and what's going to differentiate between the two of those. So when the DSM-4 talks about ADHD, it'll say you have to have uh, either, of the, either one of these two, uh, inattention or hyperactivity and impulsivity. Um, and an exa examples of inattention are when you uh, sit down to do a task, um, do you have a hard time sustaining attention to that task? Or do you find your mind kind of just wandering away from the task? Uh, in addition, people will oftentimes have a real hard time just with organizing tasks, right? Prioritizing, figuring out what's important, what isn't important. Um, and then this additional factor, which is very common in ADHD, it's not, it's not only a matter of you can't sustain attention on, on a particular task, but rather extraneous stimuli um, are so distracting that they'll pull your attention away um, and it's hard to really remain focused on what you're doing. Or uh, hyperactivity and impulsivity. Uh, and this generally takes the form of either some kind of um, physical activity outburst. People, you know, run around in circles or um, have some kind of, you know, really impulsive and hyperactive behavior. Or uh, they can come in the form of verbal, uh, verbal activities that are impulsive and kind of rapid and hyperactive, right? In addition, uh, in addition to either one of these two, the symptoms have to have been present before age seven. If they emerge after age seven, we don't consider it part of uh, ADHD or ADD, uh, at least in terms of the um, disorders that are first diagnosed in childhood and adolescence. Um, so we kind of consider AD, uh, ADHD and ADD really um, Disorders that occur early in life and they're persistent through life. Okay. These, um, it also has to uh, cause problems or impairment in two or more uh, settings. So when you think of different kinds of settings, think of uh, social, interpersonal, uh, academic, right? So you have to have a disruption in academic, 
and interpersonal functioning, or interpersonal functioning and social functioning, right? Um, if, if, if we see this constellation of symptoms, I'm not sure. Oh, <laughs> good. So this is kind of the notion of, um, you know, diagnosing and diagnosing childhood. Yeah. Um, generally, here's the deal. Um, it doesn't generally um, qualify in this, in this area, right? So somebody who's under seven, it's not inconsistent with age norms. But if it develops in those early years and is persistent, uh, then we start talking about ADHD probably. That would probably, that would be my guess of what the differentiation will be. Um, oppositional defiant disorder is a little bit different. And the key feature uh, that's going to differentiate it is that um, you have this persistent um, pattern of very negative, um, very um, rule-breaking, very defiant, defiant of authority, very negative, very hostile uh, behavior. And, um, you know, uh, having a temper, arguing with adults, uh, deliberately annoying people, um, being angry and result resentful, spiteful and vindictive. How many teenagers does that, that you know, that does that describe, right? Um, but again, go back to this stuff. Right? Um, and how much impairment is it causing the person? You know, do, is it, are they, as a result of this, are they, are they not able to stay in school? As a result of this, is the family throwing them out on their ear? As a result of this, you know, are there these real systemic um, kind of intense problems, right? So those are the, the externalizing disorders, the kind of real um, outward, um, really disturbing kinds of uh, dis disorders that we generally think of in terms of adolescents and children. Now, um, and okay, let me go back to one other thing you said. Um, you know, well, oh, well, let me talk about that later. Let's talk about internalizing disorders first, sorry. Um, so internalizing disorders are disorders where it's really um, it's really a problem in the ch in the child's um, uh, sense of self and their experiences with their sense of self, and so these internalizing disorders tend to be more inwardly directed, and so typically what we'll see in terms of uh, internalizing disorders in children and adolescents are things like mood disorders. Now. The, um, one of the real controversial diagnoses now is, um, Brittany, right? Oh, Ashley, Brittany. Um, 
One of the uh, real controversial diagnosis and diagnoses in children is uh, what's labeled now juvenile bipolar disorder. Uh, and this is a bipolar disorder that emerges as early as uh, two years old and is diagnosed as early as two. Um, and it's very controversial because children are manic, you know, I mean, normal child behavior has these manic kinds of experiences. Yes, they will be very violent. Yes, they will be very, um, uh, what, what are the other symptoms of uh, mania? Uh, they'll be very impulsive, right? But these are kind of childlike behaviors. And there was recently, not re well, maybe a year or two ago, a case of a child who uh, died in, um, in near Boston in Massachusetts as a result of an overdose of some pretty, pretty intense antipsychotic drugs that she was on. I think she was on Seroquel and um, a couple of other uh, intense antipsychotic drugs and also some SSRI drugs that were being used. And so um, really, um, uh, it really kind of brought up the issue of how can we diagnose childhood mood disorders? And the, the answer is we really can't. We don't have a good diagnostic criteria at this point. We don't have a lot of experience with diagnosing children with mood disorders. So what typically will happen is they'll be diagnosed with an internalizing disorder um, under the category of, um, uh, of child uh, disorders that first emerge in childhood and adolescence. Um, but there is more and more data now that indicate that, um, that probably children are developing bipolar disorder. Um, and the problem then is, do we use the same kinds of medications to treat them that we do use with adults? Yes or no, why or why not? What do you think? What kinds of information would you need to make a decision like that? Good, good, because adults aren't going through physiological development. Um, how will it affect their physiological development? What else? What other kinds of questions would you ask before you were able to make a determination like that? How else do they develop besides psych physiologically? So, the, but that's physiological. So social development, moral development, cognitive development, what kinds of effects of effects do these drugs going to have on those? You guys are really asleep today, aren't you? What's that? Um, two, three, four. Yeah. So there's, um, there's way too little known about the effects of adult medications on children. So what's winding up happening is we're kind of doing clinical trials by, um, by practice or by treatment rather than clinical trials that are specifically set up for children. It's difficult, first of all, to do a clinical trial with children 
because the children can't really give informed consent. Um, and the adults, you know, how comfortable would you feel as an adult giving informed consent to let your child join a clinical trial for a drug, right? So what's happening is, um, you know, the clinicians are essentially starting to run these clinical trials on children using adult drugs, which is not all that unusual. Like I said, anytime a new drug comes out, sure, it goes through clinical trials, but when it's actually released into the general population, you are a big clinical trial. So anybody that's taking that drug is part of a massive secondary sort of clinical trial, and then they start finding out, oh, by the way, it causes heart disease. Oh, damn, I wish we had known that in the clinical trials. Oh, well, too bad for all those people that died. Yeah. Sure. So you don't know what the long-term effects are, uh, even with adult drugs, because we can all, you know, the clinical trials typically only last for a few weeks or a few months at the most. Um, we don't run people in clinical trials for 20 years to see what the effect of the drug is before we put it on the market. So um, same thing with children. Yeah. 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 Good point. Um, yeah, and, and in, in this classification of disorders, we're always looking at age-appropriate behaviors. So we expect that someone is going to grow out of the terrible twos. But if someone is four or five and they're still exhibiting terrible two behavior, then we start talking about this is not normal, right? Um, but you raise a good point. Um, we expect children to be that way at that age and so presumably we could miss some children who have a disorder that has similar symptoms until later on when that those symptoms persist um, two years old so uh, so yeah I mean uh, but on the other hand when you have a two-year-old and the two-year-old um, has stabbed you with a knife on a couple of occasions, that's more than just the terrible twos, right? And so that's the kind of level of, um, of disordered behavior that we're talking about that wind up uh, being uh, possibly diagnosed with a, a serious psychiatric disorder at a very young age. But again, the data just isn't there to support the diagnosis, and the data just isn't there to support the drug treatments. But what are you going to do when someone's suffering, right? When 
a family is being disrupted because of a child's behavior? You know, um, do you just sit around and say, oh, well, we don't have a diagnostic or we don't know if the treatments are going to work? No, you try to find a solution, whether it's psychotherapy or family therapy or drug treatments or, you know, whatever it is that may be necessary, right? Yeah. Yeah, good question. Good question. So the question is, um, you know, do uh, do we, when we're making a diagnostic decision like childhood uh, psychiatric disorders, uh, do we consider the importance of the developmental environment, the home environment? And, you know, frankly, I don't know. Um, I don't have a copy of the DSM on my desk, and I don't know whether in the DSM, when they start talking about externalizing disorders and internalizing disorders, do they say the clinician should, you know, go into the family and examine the family dynamics? My suspicion is it doesn't say that, but I'm not certain about that. So, but um, yeah, it's certainly a, a concern, and we'll talk when we talk a little bit later about attachment. That's that'll come up as an issue. Yeah. yeah. There's no data, yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah, there really isn't. I mean, we do have some animal trials that we can look at in terms of development in animals, but um, relatively little. It's not, you know, these drugs are not developed for children. That's the issue, right? So they don't generally test them in animals on development, right? They assume they're going to be given to fully developed humans, so, yeah. So it is a, it is a major concern. It's going to become much more of an issue because more and more children... Um, are um, being brought into psychiatrists and psychologists and say, what's wrong with my kid? You know, and uh, don't forget that, um, I don't know if this was in your textbook, um, the lobotomy was used uh, by Walter Freeman and some of the, uh, to, to, to treat uh, behavior problems, and some of the children or, t or teenagers that were brought to him were just teenagers, you know, they were acting out as teenagers and they, will, they would have received a lobotomy. The case that I know of was uh, Howard Dulley. And if you search on the internet, um, there's an interview with him on the NPR website. And he was one of the uh, adolescent patients who received a, uh, a lobotomy uh, as a result of his stepmother saying he did things like um, left lights on in the house and stayed up too late and you know you know the sort of teenager kinds of behaviors right so we have a history in psychiatry and psychology of treating adolescence you know not necessarily a psychological disorder during adolescence right so it's a very it's very tricky slippery ice we're on um, when we start talking about treating these disorders in childhood um, 
whoops, let's talk about the uh, tick disorders. There goes that computer again. You know, it's kind of funny. I, um, I set this up on my desk. It works fine on my desk. And I come in here, and things get all weird. So when we talk about tick disorders, we think of them as these very involuntary, um, repetitive motor and vocal ticks, they're called. And they're like sudden eruptions. Um, and so typically somebody will erupt suddenly with some kind of movement or some kind of jerk, or they'll erupt suddenly with some kind of vocalization. Um, most people with a tic disorder can voluntarily control it for relatively brief periods. So they can oftentimes be functional in schools, they can be functional in occupations, but in social situations, but this takes a lot of effort and it'll tire you out after a long time trying to control it too much. The classic um, example is Tourette's disorder. And uh, let me play a brief uh, video clip of a fellow with uh, Tourette's. Oops. Helps if you plug things in. Huh? This is a clip of Ben. And Ben has Tourette's disorder. Come on, Ben. Thank you. A relatively rare brain disorder that usually expresses itself during childhood. The major symptom of this disorder is the emission of uncontrollable ticks. The ticking includes motor ticks, such as jerking the head, and vocal tics, such as emitting sounds and words. In a minority of cases, these vocal tics can also include the uttering of socially unacceptable words. Ben is a 17-year-old high school senior. He was first diagnosed with Tourette's when he was seven years old, and both he and his brother suffer from the disorder. In the first segment, Ben describes the onset of his Tourette's syndrome, and then tries to explain the internal experience of his ticking. Note that although the ticks are involuntary, Ben is able to assert some conscious control over them. I would have probably started ticking around first or second grade, the major ticking. I mean, you know, really noticing them. I mean, there was many different ticks, you know. I mean, um, I would, I used to like move my head like this, or, and I also, I would like, you know, throw my arm out, I mean, like, not like, but I mean, like, you know, you know, jerk, you know, throw my, flop my arm out like that. Not, not like seizure, I just, as a tick. Uh, and also, and then my vocal ticks would come on. It doesn't feel like an itch or anything, but, but sometimes, sometimes in my, 
it's, it's in there, and sometimes I just have to say, I gotta let it out. I have to let it out. It's not like it's not like I'm sitting. It's not like I'm sitting on this chair going, oh, you know, all of a sudden like a hiccup or, you know, all of a sudden or like a jolt or anything. It's something that I purposely let out. You know, I'll, you know, it's you know sometimes you know I, I I can control it. I can control it to a certain extent. You know, it's really not any. It's really not any. There's really not any feeling with it. It's just something that has to be done. Well, I can hold them in for a while. You know, sometimes like I test myself. You know, I, you know, I sometimes I can just sit and hold still for a while, and I can I can do it for a long, long time. If I focus on it and I put my mind to it, I can do it. I haven't really been, I, I, I haven't really met any, met a lot of a lot of people who have Tourette's as worse as mine. I mean, it's, I don't I, I don't have I mean I've seen, I mean I've heard I've seen people on TV like like there's this one Tourette's video called Twitch and Shout. Um, I've seen people, um, you know, you know I mean like thrashing head. You know, major ticks like that. But I, I see myself kind of in a medium, a medium, kind of a medium, just in the middle case. You know, not a mild, not a severe, but kind of a medium. A person's emotional and cognitive states affect the extent of ticking. For example, ticks are less likely to occur when a person is relaxed or when concentrating on a particular task. As you have seen, when Ben is answering questions during this interview, fewer ticks are expressed. However, during the time between questions, as seen here, the rate of ticks increases. Embarrassing because 
you know, all, a lot of times little eyes look at me, you know, especially those little guys, you know. I'm, 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 I'm you know, because I don't want to, sometimes it, it's so, it really feels like sometimes, it feels like that they're, they're seeing this monster thing, you know, you know, and I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want them to feel that, I don't want them to feel like I'm a bad guy, which I'm just a, I'm a nice kid. I am a nice, you know, I'm not a monster, I'm Ben Caramana. Oh, I've been difficult, I've been having a difficult time um, finding a girlfriend. I mean, I, 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 I might not be ready to have a girlfriend, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting up there, you know, I am getting up there. But, uh, you know, and sometimes I have a tendency to, you know, as just a natural tendency to have having Tourette's, sometimes I have a tendency to scare them away. Well, Tourette's is just, you know, Tourette's is kind of, you know, Tourette's is kind of a, you know, have, you know, the girls, the girl, girls would probably, I would probably be sort of embarrassed, you know. But you know, and, and, I mean, I mean, it's not that I, and they probably know that I can't help it, and all, and you know, it's not, you know, it's not that they don't like me. It's not that they don't like Benny Caramano. Researchers believe that Tourette's disorder may be caused by an abnormality in the subcortical areas of the brain, which control movement of the face and limbs. In turn, this hypothesis has led to the development of drug treatments. In this segment, Ben explains that he has taken a variety of medications in an attempt to reduce his symptoms. Although these treatments have been moderately successful, Ben has also developed a number of behavioral techniques that he uses to control and to conceal his ticking. Taking so many medicines, it, it's, it's unbelievable. But, you know, not, medication is not the only thing out there, you know. You know, I can, you know, I can, I can always try taking deep breaths, like, just calms me down, you know, especially in situations like this. No. <laughs> Ben is saddened by his disorder, 
he remains hopeful for a bright and meaningful future. Seventeen years of having seventeen years of having to write. I just it's still it's it's a lie. I'll let me know. Oh well it's it's not. Well, it's it's in a way it's a lot, you know. You know, I mean you have to, you know, it you know it you know, it oh, having Having, have, being a teenager, having Tourette's on your shoulders is a lot, and I have cried. It, Tourette's is, it's tough, but hey, I, it doesn't make me less of a man. There's, that's not, I mean, that's you know, it, that's just an old, that's just an old, wise, that's just an old wise stereotype tale, you know, saying that you know, this, oh, you can't cry about that. Tough it in. You're a man. Can't then cry. Imagine how we feel. You know, it's something that people cannot help. You know, and you know, oh, reach out to that person and you know, realize that you know, this person has this person has something different about them. But also, you know, this person might be a really good person. This person is a really probably is a really good person. And look, you have to look look beyond. Look beyond the text. You hit that light back there. Thanks. Any uh, comments about Ben? Seemed very articulate, very smart. Um, certainly, um, it would. It seems odd that he would have trouble finding a girlfriend, but. Um, you know, at that age, maybe, you know, girls and boys are very, maybe very, um, they see things superficially, maybe more so than when they get older. I don't know. Yep. be hard what's uh, what's his or her personal experience of that I mean do, do they tend to resent resent being ticked out kicked out or That finishes us up for today. We'll pick up, um, we'll talk a little bit more about internalizing disorders next time. I'll see you.
Monday, that's right. Oh, and uh, we won't have class next Wednesday, don't forget. <laughs>